You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It is uh, July 15th, 2021 at 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And um, I had intended to talk about the knowledge of the miseries or the uh, dark night of the soul, the six, sevens, and eighth stage of the progress of insight if uh, using that uh, format. Um, But if you have any questions that you'd like to talk about before we begin that, I'm happy to answer them and I'll try and weave it in as we go along. (laughs) everybody's good so um, there's often conversation in the Theravada community about the dark night of the soul which is a Christian term uh, or the knowledge of the miseries which is the Buddhist term to describe uh, the uh, direct experience of Uh, the self not being substantial, um, the basic nature of impermanence, both in large and small things, and then also this recognition that you live in a body that is aging and will get sick and eventually will die. Um, I I find that interesting um, in the way that we sort of think about that. I, I had uh, two conversations that, that week. Uh, I was uh, talking to someone and, um, and uh, he said that, well, now that I've gotten into late middle age, what is late middle age really versus our stretching of, of, of the aging process? Um, if you're talking about it from a biological point of view, Uh, There's different stages of development, say one to 10 is uh, childhood and then puberty begins to happen. You enter into the process of puberty and the the maturation of the brain. We call it adolescence. Um, Brain maturity doesn't complete until your mid-20s, but it gets better along the way, adolescence. And then youth uh, begins at, say, around age 20 and lasts until about age 30, somewhere in the end of the 20s, there's a change in energy in the body and you go from a body that's growing and developing to a body that begins to age. So if you're younger than your late 20s, you really don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you're lucky and you live long enough, you'll be able to begin the journey of aging. Um, 30 to 40 is this uh, sort of uh, uh, adjustment to the aging process. Uh, It also corresponds in our culture to positioning for your adult life, which begins at around age 40, and then lasts up until uh, the earlier mid-50s when there's another change in energy in the body and you begin uh, a rapid aging process, which we call old age. And then uh, in the uh, the U.S., the uh, uh, 
you know, the expected lifespan is for most people is sort of the mid seventies. There's also another change in energy in the body that happens in the mid seventies or so, uh, where you uh, enter into uh, what we call old, old age, but most people don't make that uh, change into old, old age. Most people die uh, uh, within at some point in their seventies. So uh, if you were to say you're in late middle age, uh, what age would you expect to be in? And that would be your early fifties. <laughs> so I looked at this guy and I thought, there's no way he's in his early fifties. So I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm 68. And I said, not only are you not in late middle age, you are you're halfway through old age. <laughs> what, what, George, what's going on with people in this generation? I hear this, like, you know, like, I hear this from like my mom. She's like seventy. She's like, I'm, I'm thirty. I'm thirty. I swear. I'm like thirty. I'm like, what kind of, what's going on in your brains? I don't get it. <laughs> Uh, it's my uh, an old friend of mine said if you if you're not knee deep in the river and you can't see the pyramids, it's not the Nile. <laughs> Do you get it? I guess you don't. Oh, denial. Kind of oh, denial. Okay. <laughs> None of us really want to. Uh, come to terms with this. Uh, we, we end up so strongly identified with this body as being me and this life being my life and that there's very little beyond that conceptualization of it, which would suggest also on the progress of insight that you haven't quite gotten through the third or the fourth stage of the of the map to have these direct experiences. Mm. And if you do, you get dumped into the knowledge of the miseries where you see quite clearly that the sense of self arises and is a sensing experience. And it's not substantial beyond that, that it comes and goes. And it's, it's only based on conditions and it can arise in dramatically different ways based on the conditioning. And that that's- that, George, that, that was that, a great transition. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, another thing that happened is my friend uh, Trix, who uh, was very close to in the 80s, um, 70s and 80s, died uh, uh, Sunday, and uh, she was 74. That's an average lifespan. That's the, that's the range where you normally die. This is my contemporary thing. You know, when I was a kid, uh, um, people died of drunk driving or overdoses. And then when I got into my 20s, people died of AIDS. Uh, and uh, in my 30s, it was, you know, addiction of some form or other. And, and then it sort of leveled off. Uh, and now I have this remarkable experience of my peer group dying of old age uh, in a normal frame of time. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a touching process in a way because 
uh, it creates uh, the process, at least in my mind, of doing my sums and uh, um, taking in the things that were really valuable to me, the things, the kindnesses mainly is what I remember, and uh, the, the help that I received and the insights that I received uh, at different times in my life that changed the direction of my life that led me to arrive here in this place, which is actually pretty good. Um, and um, what that was like. I saw her not too long ago uh, in New York, uh, probably three years ago or so. Um, she died of Parkinson's, which is a sort of something that happens to bodies. Um, and she was, uh, she was fierce. She was uh, outspoken. She was active. Uh, and I greatly admired her. Uh, but the last time I saw her, she was, you know, halfway through the process of Parkinson's and, and uh, very different. You, we each are the age that we are, and we each are in the body that we're in, and each of the bodies that we are in have the quality of health that they have. And if we continue to push off into the future, this idea that we're going to live uh, an extraordinary amount of time. I, I mean, I have a friend who who uh, is in her uh, mid-70s, and uh, every time I talk to her about it, she says that she's going to live to be 130. I can tell you that the odds against living to, to be 130 are, you know, you'd win the lottery five times before that would happen. <laughs> How do you organize that self? So this is this, um, the first one, six, is seeing into the nature of self. Uh, fearfulness is the, English word uh, that is used for this, the fearfulness of understanding the precious nature of uh, being alive. Um, and in some ways, seeing into the fragility of that, the temporary nature of it, and then um, coming into an awareness of the conditioning, uh, coming into an awareness of how we find meaning in this experience um, the unusual nature of it. Um, so in some sense, when we go through this early process of uh, investigating um, the path for liberation, we go through just really getting acquainted with the, the body and the capacity to sense things, the capacity to order things. We get a sense of what our conditioning is like. Uh, we investigate that our preferences, we begin to understand that actually everything is about our preferences. We pay attention to things that interest us and we ignore things that don't. And we create the experience of our life based on the things that we prefer with the, to the exclusion of things that we don't prefer. And it creates these distorted uh, uh, conceptual realities that we inhabit. Um, and then we touch uh, just along the surface of this investigation into the idea of the experience of self 
into the idea of the security that we get about believing that we can make something lasting, that's reliable, that we can actually hold on to. Uh, and then um, this process of being in a body. What do you think about your body? Is it beautiful? Uh, do you love being in it? Is it everything that you want it to be? Um, do you think of it in, in, in its essence uh, um, without comparing it to the responses of other people to it? Uh, are you identified with it to the extent that uh, when people react to it, that you take that on as a reaction to you or merely a reflection of their conditioning around uh, qualities of beauty or uh, ugliness or um, I grew up with a mother who thought that she was ugly uh, and all of us in, in my family have that really embedded um, because of uh, the contradiction of course um, I don't know what your childhood experience was, but my experience was that she was absolutely beautiful, radiant. Um, and uh, and yet over and over again, uh, uh, she expressed the painfulness of being uh, ugly uh, and, and uh, how uh, that belief, that way of being in the world was taken in and how it's affected uh, um, my experience of being in the world and my expectation of how people will respond to me. Um, and sometimes I can see that the, the internal experience uh, that I have of myself is completely divorced from the reality of it. But it, it is uh, possible that I could look at a photograph from 25 years ago and be astounded by uh, um, how good looking I am in the photograph and yet have no sense of the time uh, when I was living uh, then um, that I was uh, anything but uh, repellent. And so <laughs> that's that compelling sense of sticky self that arises that you can really grab onto. Uh, and then in this process of examining it, uh, see that actually it's a construction and it isn't the thing that's there. Uh, it, it's a, it has uh, facets to it. One is, of course, that uh, you had a very distorted view and you operated on the view as if it were true. And then that uh, changed your action in the world and what came from that action. Um, it was a great relief, really, to open to this notion of the sense of self arising and passing. Christian? I'm curious, did you find that, like, your experience with maybe the way you saw yourself, like, tracked one-to-one -one with you actually having insights in meditation? Or did you find that they were kind of, they kind of ran somewhat parallel? Um, like, did, did that like flip the switch for you? 
the this the the main uh, flip was when I had my first big cessation experience, um, which is the twelfth stage, a little bit further down. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so there's a, there's a moment where you have a recognition that there might be fruition. And then there's a moment that there's going to be fruition. And then there's the moment after fruition, when you come to out of the cessation experience, uh, and there's, uh, sound, but no light. But there's no fixation of the sound. It's just pure sound. And then light comes, but there's no fix, fixation of the light, of light. And then the sense of self arises, but there's no fixation of the sense of self. Or maybe um, it's not the sense of self. It's, it's awareness that turns on and it's not fixated or attached in any way. And uh, it's incredibly blissful and... Um, and uh, uh, you have the sense of understanding the nature of, of the human condition uh, with such uh, clarity. And then you see the arising of all of the limiting beliefs, uh, all of those constructions that you've made, and you see that they are, they are just that, these constructions that have arisen and not substantial or true. And that opened, opened that space. Of course, then you have these um, sort of, <laughs> sort of these. Uh, it's it's almost like sandpaper or or sharp objects that you have to then manage in a way that's very different than actually believing uh, believing them. They're still there, and you still have to manage them, and they're prickly and sharp, and and can be painful, but they're not you, in that sense. Stas, how do you figure out uh, if you already had that experience or not? Um. Well, it's quite unusual. Uh, the first few times that happens, I would guess, so that it would stand out. But it's also uh, very, um, or you know, in line with the uh, Theravada way of practicing, uh, and and certainly not the map in other traditions. Um, Shinzen would uh, cause the tiny little pieces of awareness of that, the taste of enlightenment. I think Dan uh, calls it awakened awareness, um, the taste of it. And then uh, the activity is to stabilize it, which is true also in the Theravada map. Um, so there's the abrupt plunge in one way of doing it and then there's the shift that's quite subtle the zen metaphor is you're walking through a heavy mist and by the end of the path you're completely drenched in the same way that you would be drenched by plunging a single time into the pool and then somewhere in the middle of that transition between completely soaked and thoroughly damp uh, 
how much uh, do you know of it? Um, I think that what begins to happen uh, at the stage that we're talking about, uh, five, six, and seven, when you come out of that into reobservation, is that uh, the the intensity of suffering that happens when you get trapped in the self-experience falls away. Uh, and there's a period where uh, most of the time it's it, you're free of it. Uh, it's only when you get trapped in a sense of self and can't get out of it that you have the experience of the intensity of the suffering of that, uh, of that being trapped in the limited identity. And that that would be one, one way to tell. Have you noticed this shift out of the uh, confinement of identification with the limited self-experience uh, into the relative freedom of uh, awareness? Yeah, I'm just reminded your description of that the unfixated state, um, something I was describing maybe a year ago in retreat with you, and you were very curious about it. I uh -huh. maybe should have asked <laughs> a little more what it meant. Oh. I think you're curious about the attachment reference and how it plays out with that experience. Because, you know, I think you were saying uh, later, you said something like it can be frightening if you're insecurely attached. And for me, it was pretty blissful and right. kind of ordinary in a way. Yeah. Uh, obviously, not an ordinary uh, awareness experience, but. Um, I recall you being securely attached. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, we, we, I, I, I often talk about this, but I think that one of the things that happens uh, when you're really uh, uh, closely identified with the structures of self and you think that that's who you are, that uh, to lose them is quite frightening. Uh, if uh, you um, find that the, the experience is so um, changing of your view uh, that you can no longer perform the inauthentic way that you manage your relationships, then all of the relationships where you've managed them through inauthentic expressions of yourself are in trouble because you can't provide uh, the camouflage in the relationships that they require to function. And so everything has to be renegotiated. Um, <clears throat> this can be quite frightening to, to uh, no longer be able to generate the inauthenticity in relationships that you, you've based the relationships on. Um, and uh, sometimes they're negotiable and sometimes they're not. When you're very inauthentic in your presentation to people in order to attract them, um, they think that that's who you are, right? That's what they're drawn to. That's what pulls them in. If you then present to them that that actually isn't who you are and you're completely somebody else, they may not want that. Then what do you do? It would be fine if you could just flip back into the inauthenticity to support the relationship, but often what happens in this process of 
seeing these things so clearly as you can't really do it anymore, or you can't do it in a way that's convincing anymore. And so the relationships have become to be, begin to come apart. And then what you, um, if you want to look at it then through the attachment lens, see what kind of attachment strategies tend to rely on in authenticity. And you're looking at the, the preoccupation piece that, that mainly does that. Okay. I don't want to get too off track. Just another curiosity for people that are really dissociative. What happens when they, like, if they have that experience? Um, you mean, uh, if they have a cessation experience, what happens in the process of reorganizing? Mm -hmm. um, well, if they use association as the primary means of emotional regulation, it could uh, exacerbate the this, uh, the dissociation until they're able to come back into uh, regulation. So depending on how that works, uh, they could of course dissociate the, the difficult parts and just keep the, the parts that are pleasant and then get to the other parts later. That's hard to know. The sense of self when you see it as transitory and insubstantial and arising in reaction to the conditions of the present moment, uh, it's, it's a kind of freeing thing. It isn't that you don't want to have a sense of self or to be able to express a sense of self. You do want that. And you want to be able to manifest in the moment a, a brilliant sense of self that's finely tuned to the conditions that you're in so that you can really manage them well. And then uh, when those conditions change, abandon that sense of self uh, as it being insubstantial and not cling to it. So you're moving from selfing activity to selfing activity as required. And when you don't require it, then you don't manifest a sense of self. If you manifest a sense of self and it, uh, it feels as if you're being attacked, you simply drop it and manifest a different sense of self that doesn't experience things that way. And so the suffering is very little. The second piece, of course, is uh, misery. It's called misery in English, uh, which is about nothing actually being permanent, nothing lasting, nothing being substantial. Um, I like to talk about this as if it's a fork in the road, and in one direction is nihilism, and in the other direction is full engagement. If nothing lasts, if nothing can be counted on, if nothing is real in that sense, why does anything matter? Why do anything? Why live an ethical life? That's uh, nihilism. I don't recommend that you take that. And I always think of it as a turn to the right. I would suggest you turn to the left. <laughs> and go in fully, knowing as you're going in at the very beginning that it won't last and you're going to lose it. In one, very, which is a very defensive stance, you don't engage, so you don't have to have the experience of losing it. But you lose it anyway. In both directions, you lose it. If you don't engage in it, of course, you don't have the experience of engaging. 
you only have the experience of losing. If you go in the direction of full engagement, then you have the experience of engaging in each moment as fully as you can, and then each moment ends, and there's this pop of sadness that arises, and you embrace the sadness as energy that then propels you into the next moment where you fully engage it. Um, another way to put that is you cannot give up. <laughs> Even if it's difficult, you have to keep going, you have to keep embracing, you have to keep exploring because that's where the meaningfulness is. You know, you read in the paper, I, I, I see quite often that there's a despair, in, in, particularly in older people, uh, because the, the, the difficulties of aging confound, compound and uh, without enough meaningfulness in the way that you navigate your life, it often seems this isn't worth doing. This is so difficult. Uh, it's not worth doing because I, I can't get any meaning. Everything, all the possibilities for meaningfulness have uh, uh, vanished or, or are in my uh, past uh, in different times of my life. And so um, what I would really say to that is you have to keep engaging, keep going, keep uh, exploring, keep finding the things that are meaningful in the vehicle that you currently have uh, to go do that in. Um, we have a, a saying in my, my peer group is uh, when somebody hobbles in on crutches, uh, I had a moment of mindful, mindlessness when I thought I was young again. <laughs> I went skiing, you know, <laughs> or whatever it was. Uh, uh, hilarious. Uh, I thought I could change my own tire. Now I have to wear this brace for three months, you know. It's hilarious. Uh, how can you come into the each moment and inhabit each moment with the conditions as they are and see them clearly? And so that you can say when you're 68 years old that you're halfway through old age with a sort of a triumph uh, in, in your inflection because you've made it this far. I remember once I was with my grandmother and she was 94. She walked into the room and she looked around and said, I know God has a plan for me. I just wish he'd let me in on it, that she kept walking, which I thought was hilarious also. Um, she uh, was an avid reader and she loved novels. And so she read voraciously, but, um, and that was really how she uh, kept her mind alive when her body really didn't, uh, didn't operate that well anymore. How are you going to do it? Depending on where you are in your life, of course. Let's say you're in your 20s and and you're looking at, at, at how you want to make your life out of the possibilities that are in front of you. And uh, can you discern what's meaningful and what isn't meaningful? Uh, and, uh, and how do you know what that is? Of course, we, uh, those of us who have used meditation as a way of investigating this, 
developed the capacity to meditate in a way that illustrates for us uh, answers to these uh, very basic human concerns. You know, attachment is, uh, in Western psychology, means the system of, uh, of how you view uh, the relative safety of human connection. And in, in, in Buddhism, it means whether you fixate or not, the undifferentiated vibratory energy of uh, beingness. Can you come and go from that non-attached place and at the same time order this macro experience of life. <clears throat> Nothing lasts, not the big stuff, not the little stuff. Usually if we don't like something that, and it's not going to last, that's just fine. It's usually when we like something that we want to hold on to it and make it go longer, extend it, but it doesn't. Um, and it's in the clinging or in the resisting where the suffering is not in the coming and going because it's always come and gone. It's the longing that comes from things that are missing. It's the resistance, the, you know, the bracing, the pushing away that is the source of suffering. And can you just come into that flow? One of the skill sets uh, of uh, secure attachment is flexibility, which really speaks to this. Can you do what is happening? You can plan, you can make uh, the, the choices of the things that you want to happen. You can put that all into motion, but then the thing that happens is what's happening. And can you be in the experience of the things that are happening, not in the experience of what you wished would happen or wished would not happen? Because then you're constantly moving ahead with this flow of the experience of life. Karma is an interesting thing. I was uh, talking to, to Dan about it. Um, at the entrance of this path, this uh, Buddhist meditation path, we make a decision to be an ethical person. This is an important thing. Uh, when I was f first in uh, first in practice, Shinzen explained it. If you're always looking over your shoulder, waiting for somebody to retaliate against you because you've behaved badly, how present can you be for the meditation technique that we're trying to get you to practice, right? You can't. The mind won't settle. It's always on edge. So you want to begin to operate in the world in an ethical way. But if you look at that uh, through the lens of karma, um, the things that happen, happen. You have maybe thought about what you wanted to happen. You may have taken actions to get the thing that you want to have happen to happen. And uh, then what happens, happens. It may or may not be the thing that you intended or wanted or uh, longed to have happen. Um, and you may, because you don't want it, or it isn't what you planned, think of it as not a good outcome. But how do you know that? If you operate from this ethical framework, then there can be an expectation that the thing that happens is actually good karma. 
And then the exercise then is to understand what that means, different from maybe what you wanted. There's that uh, Japanese Zen story about the farmer and the horse. If you don't know it, um, the farmer has a horse which he uses to plow his uh, rice fields. And one morning he wakes up and he goes out to the corral and the horse is gone. And the neighbors come by and they say, what terrible luck you have. You have the worst luck of all of us. And he says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? <coughs> three days later, his horse returns with three wild horses. So now he has four horses. The neighbors come by and they say, you're the luckiest person out of all of us. You have better luck than we all do. <coughs> Excuse me. The farmer says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? The next morning, his eldest son goes out to try and break one of the new horses. It throws him and he breaks his leg. His leg, And his, the neighbors come by and they say, you have the worst luck out of all of us. Nobody has as bad luck as you have. And he said, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? And then the next day, a warlord came through town and conscripted all of the able-bodied eldest sons, but left the farmer's son because his leg was broken. And the neighbors came by and said, you have the, the best luck out of all of us. Nobody has better luck than you. And he said, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Um, so we push into um, taking action. So we take in the data and we understand what it means and we form an intention and we take an action, which we hope to be skillful. And then there's the outcome of that. And uh, if we don't, if it doesn't match well enough the thing that we wanted, maybe we don't like it, maybe we don't value it, maybe we don't see it uh, for what it is. Um, or if we wanted it as it begins to change, uh, we cling to it and want it to preserve it in some way, rather than in each moment taking in what's happening and then understanding, forming our intention and taking our action and then seeing what happens, and then in that moment, uh, taking in that data and, and not clinging, not generating a sense of self around, just being in this constant flow of being alive and participating in the unfolding as it's happening to us. Um, so in this, this dissolution experience, which is the fifth stage, all of the solidness uh, dissolves and there's no way for us to get it back in the moment of dissolution. And because of that, we have the direct experience of nothing being solid, nothing being self, nothing lasting. Uh, and forever, for however long uh, that happens, it breaks our uh, ability to believe in the nature of those things. And then we come out again, of course, the capacity for solidness returns, the capacity for self returns, the capacity to touch into and uh, connect to the body and to experience it as separate, uh, an inside and an outside, all of that comes back. 
but it's not believable in the same way that it was before. And this is this uh, knowledge of the miseries. And so we then uh, need to unravel or unhook ourselves from all of the, the strategies that are based on this, that we use to operate in the world. <clears throat> and in the unhooking, of course, we become free uh, six, seven, and eight. Nine is the desire to be delivered from suffering. And it's like an undercurrent. We see that the stickiness of it, we see that it's easy to get trapped in it. We see uh, how much uh, pain it causes. And uh, there's this deep desire to be free of that. And we just need to drop into that and it pulls us out of that. Uh, into the 10th stage, which is reobservation, where we actually begin to operate in the world with the, the understanding that these things are, are the human condition. This, the sense of self uh, is ephemeral. It arises and passes based on conditions. Nothing lasts. Everything changes. The whole life won't last. The individual moments won't last. The individual sensing experiences won't last. And the body we're in won't last. And then we come into a sense of acceptance of this. And uh, in that sense of acceptance is enormous freedom. Is that all making sense? Um, <clears throat> So let's do some meditation. What do you think? Good idea. Uh, we'll do some see, hear, feel. Um, and uh, you can choose, uh, or maybe we'll just do uh, a few minutes of each. Let's just do a few minutes of each um, of those examinations. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about that? Christian. Could you describe a little bit more from a technique standpoint, um, the searching for dukkha? I guess I wasn't like I could find aches and pains, um, but I I didn't want to get into the conceptual too much I guess, and that seemed like a temptation. So I wasn't exactly sure how to do that or if I was doing it right. Was there any part of your body that's never aged? Um, I suppose not, but that seems like a a conceptual that seems like a conceptual thing so how how do i explore that from a sort of experiential uh, lens well uh, you could do parts of the body and just staying with that and something something will reveal itself or am i looking out for am i looking out for the particular aches and pains that come with age or something well, I don't know. Uh, uh, 
one way to do it might be I'm touching into the experience of my little toe. Has it not aged? And the experience of my little toe is can answer that question? Yes. Okay. Um, can you think of a, a time when you got what you want and you never lost it? Probably not. And uh, when you're in visual visual thinking space, can you find a time uh, where you had something that you never lost? Meaning I'm in visual space and I'm also having thoughts about, I'm a little, I'm still a little, you're getting caught up in thinking about it rather than just doing the thing. So I'm in hearing space. In hearing space, can I find something that I've always had that I've never lost? What do you notice about the nature of hearing space? So the whole inquiry doesn't really make sense. Sure. So then how can I find it there? Okay. Okay, I think I can, I think I can do that, yeah. In, so, in, in touching into the body, is it now perfect? Or is there some irritation about the way the body is? Yeah, I can find some irritation. <laughs> Jake, you were so, going to say something? So it seems like you've sort of adapted the emptiness practice into the Theravadan insight model that you teach. And <laughs> am I correct? Is that what's going on? You've adapted the emptiness teaching with that. But my question is, so in emptiness practice, the way that I've heard it is that uh, unfindability opens up into a further instruction, like into the vast expanse and so on. And so in the way that you're teaching uh, this model, what is, what does, you know, the three characteristics, where are you hoping that opens up into for people? And how does that go from, how does that not become exhausting? You know, how does it not become exhausting just to, be looking at the three characteristics. No, I, I'm hoping that it becomes completely exhausting and that you give up trying to find uh, the solidness, the ongoingness, the, the satisfaction. But haven't, haven't we already given up on that? We're just normally in <laughs> denial about the whole situation. Well, so you just get back to where you started. Trying to pierce the denial. The sense of self really is the uh, the activity of self tenaciously holds on to the the meagerest shred of b b belief that uh, I'm just not seeing it. It, it. it isn't 
it is the way. I'm going to live to be 130. Um, my one friend. Uh, I want you to exhaust yourself in attempting to uh, create that sense of permanence so that you can give up on it. It's more like weight trading. Okay. All right. You, you lift the weight until you can't lift it anymore. Okay. So you just, you just want people to be stronger in terms of their understanding of the three characteristics. That's the purpose of this exercise. Right. To okay. really settle into, to, to just release any belief that it could be different than that that you can really just come into that knowledge that's setting up uh, reobservation where you just take life on its terms in that sense, in the, in the nature of it. Mm -hmm. So that you'll be free, so that you won't suffer. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you sound unconvinced or you look unconvinced. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat unconvinced. I don't know why. I don't know why, because cognitively, I'm not going to argue with you about the efficacy, like that the three char characteristics are the truth. I understand that. Right. But uh, I don't know why something isn't, it's not working for me this morning about this. I don't know why. Okay. Yeah. More exploration. Okay. Juliet? <laughs> My mom is not Juliet. <laughs> hi. Hi, but without the camera. I just wanted to say to hi. Hi, how are you? I <laughs> <laughs> say bye. Bye. Lucia. I can't hear you. A little louder. So my mic works, but I'm just too, my voice is too loud. Is that what's I, happening? I can hear it, but it's very soft. You, if you speak louder, maybe that will help. Okay, got it. Is this better? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm having trouble with the first two exercises, particularly because I don't see very clearly the way in which I cling to a sense of self or into a sense of permanence. I, I totally buy that that's what I do, but I, I haven't reached a point where I see that or I can feel it. And sometimes I can feel like, like this sense of self, like, oh yeah, I have a sense that I'm me, I'm Lucia, blah, blah, blah. And I can just get a little bit of a sense of what that is. And then I look for it and, and it's nowhere to be found. But most of the time I can't even take that first step. I don't know if I'm explaining my my um, block here. Well, it sounds like the habit of uh, of the sense of self arising. Um, one way to do it might be to track the arising of the experience of self, but then pay attention to its passing. One of the ways that the sense of self creates the appearance of permanence is by we track the arising, but we, we don't attract the passing. And then we track the, the next arising 
and we create this wave of arisings of self that seems to be endless. Uh, and so really paying attention to the passing away of the sense of self. And the same is true of, of the, the sense of things being continuous. Uh, and so uh, the, the meditation, and you could look at any sense gate for this would be noting the arising, the middle and the passing and then the arising, the middle, and the passing, so that you begin to sensitize yourself to the passing, which is the thing that we tend to ignore. Does that make uh, sense? Kind of, except, no, it makes sense, but I, I'm trying to match it onto my experience. And what happens is that I notice the arising of a sense of self, but then it doesn't seem to pass, it seems to, um, go back into shadows right. and the feeling i think this is more of a thought that it's it's that my mind is too cloudy to really see it but it's there it's just behind the shadows of, of all the things that i've got going on can you is it a, uh, a matter of just getting clear in, in meditation and then being able to see that better uh, it is that but it also may be a confusion between awareness and the sense of self Awareness is uh, constant uh, most of the time. And one of the ways that we create the perception of a constant self is we notice the arising of the sense of self, but as it begins to pass away, we, we identify with awareness as if it were the self experience. And then the next time the sense of self arises, we jump from awareness into the self experience. And so awareness becomes this bridge which connects the different selfing experiences together and without discerning the difference between them, it appears as one experience. Um, yeah, but, that makes sense. How could I, who, how could I start uh, working on that discerning? I would just do, whenever you're doing any meditation, note the arising, the middle and the passing, and when, when it ends, note gone. And stay with any sensing experience through the arising, the middle, and the passing, and when it ends, don't go on. So that you 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 stop. I mean, you're controlling the the movement of the mind when you do that. So it's not just freely moving, but it'll begin to give you the sense of the waves of arising and passing. Okay, thank you. Uh huh. I I, I think I figured out what was bothering me. I just want to say. Okay. It was, it was the sense that I was using the sense of self to be investigating the sense of self rather than using awareness to investigate mm -hmm. the sense of self. And so it was just sort of uh, frustrating to me. And I didn't pick up <laughs> onto, onto why, you know, my mind just wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it didn't find pleasure in that. It found a sort of contradiction in that. And right. I would touch upon into realizing what it was, but then forget it. And then, yeah, so I just, that's what it was. I was using the sense of self to investigate the sense of self. And that's what was frustrating. But using awareness to investigate the sense of self, it's different, isn't it? It is. Yeah, okay. Um, the first discern, that first really basic discernment in, in, in awareness being different than the self-activity. But I, I do, I don't mind the self trying to find itself. It, it actually, it's kind of humorous. 
<laughs> the thing that isn't there, trying to find the thing that is there. Uh, no? The, 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 thing, the thing that is there, try, I don't even get it. It's, <laughs> it's like a Hall of Mirrors situation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Donald Rumsfeld meditation. <laughs> Uh, meditating on the, the different stages of hell, I think, is actually a, a practical meditation, too. I think I told you that story before. Um, <clears throat> we went, I wanted to go and see the tallest standing Buddha in Asia, so we drove for like seven hours into the middle of nowhere in northern Myanmar, and there it was, 31 stories, which is all of the levels of uh, uh, the different realms. And uh, normally you go into the elevator, which takes you up to the 31st floor, and then you descend down. So this is in the hot season in the tropics in a giant concrete Buddha, and the elevator is broken. So we decide we'll walk up. And so we, we spend half a day walking up through the, for, the, for the, the layers of hell until we reach the human realm. <laughs> But by the time we got to the human realm, we were so exhausted, we decided that was enough for this lifetime <laughs> and went back down through the, uh, the different stages of hell. It's quite hilarious. All right. We've run out of time. George, huh? it, it would be great if you tell, tell us this story every week. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Are you being facetious? No, no, really. <laughs> I, I, I'll try and do that. Thank you. All right. Thank you for coming. Uh, what's happening? We're doing, we're, we're in the middle of our level one series. So uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday is the second day long. And then two weeks is the third day long. And then Two weeks from there is the, the fourth day long on um, meditation and attachment for coupling. Uh, everybody's welcome to that. Please come. We're going through the, the, the basic framework of the attachment work that we do. In September, we're starting a level two class, uh, which is a deeper dive into the attachment stuff. And it adds to that the, uh, a more in-depth examination of the ideal parent figure protocol. And then we've decided and committed to doing our uh, winter retreat in person. So we'll put that up on the website in a few, uh, um, in the next week or so. Uh, we, I like to do small retreats, so it's limited to 16 spaces. So, and that does tend to fill up. Uh, so if you wanna do that, take a look at that. Um, and that's pretty much the rest of the year. Um, I offer this teaching on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity, which means I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll support uh, the work that I'm doing and also the work Meta Group is doing through a donation. There's a link to make a donation on the website. Thank you for coming, and we hope to see you soon uh, somewhere along the way. Bye now. <laughs>